This is Buffalo, What's Next? I'm Jay Moran. I'm Bridget Jaipal Valenza. And I'm Dave Debo. If ever there was an issue that demands more discussion now, the racist massacre at Tops Friendly Markets on May 14th is it. Um, you know, America has a long, deep, rich history of racism brutalizing black communities. But where does it go from here? What does our community need? We must work and teach our children. What issues just aren't being addressed? As long as we keep doing the same thing, we're just sitting ducks for the next mass shoot. That's all you can say. This is a new program. Every weekday, we'll set aside this hour to hear from the community about issues that can no longer be held back. We need to make a concerted effort in our nation, in our institutions, and yes, in our families. And good morning. And thanks very much for joining us today. I'm Jay Moran, and we're being joined by Denise Barr, a membership, a member of the leadership of the Fruit Belt community. Good morning to you. Good morning. Mrs. Barr, how are you managing today? Today's a better day. It's been a little bit easier today. I feel like now that I've we've been through the funerals and, you know, we're st- starting to even some things out, I feel like uh, I can sleep a little better. I had a chance to meet you over at the um, Fruit Belt yesterday, and I thought you brought up a really interesting point that I haven't heard in a lot of the discussions in recent weeks, and that is Buffalo's East Side isn't one homogeneous entity. <laughs> exactly. It's a series of neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. Expand on that a little bit more. Yeah, I mean, you know, that's uh, for people that know me, that's always a uh, sore spot. Sp- spot with me that people talk about community and it's become a soundbite. You know, it gives you that warm and fuzzy, but you never know what community they're talking about. And I've been very specific and intentional that when I'm talking about community, I'm talking about the Fruit Belt because that's where I live and that's where I work. I cannot be the voice of a community that I don't represent. I don't know really much about. You know, but people love to do that, right? They talk about the east side. Even when you see on the news, when they show the clips over, there's crime, right? It's on the east side. Well, yeah, but there's a lot of neighborhoods on the east side. So it would be like talking about, you know, uh, the whole community of Buffalo and showing a film clip. And you're like, okay, so where is that? (laughs) (laughs) And we'd love to talk about some of those other neighborhoods and we'll get into it because I think that's you bring up a a good point about that. And that's something we can talk about in future shows with other people who Mm -hmm. live in those neighborhoods. Exactly. Let's talk about your neighborhood, the Fruit Belt. Mm -hmm. What do you tell people when you tell them they're not from Buffalo, that you're from the Fruit Belt. What do you tell right. about that? So, you know, our community was originally mostly German. There were um, uh, there was a blend of other nationalities that lived there, but it was predominantly German. Uh, we still have some of that architecture that's in our community. Um, since the white flight had happened, now it's mostly people of color. It's mostly seniors. It's mostly people that have lived in the same home all of their lives or most of their lives. A lot of people that are in the community are either uh, related by blood or they're related by relationship, you know. So that's really where my community is, that it's mostly seniors. It makes it a little bit unique, right, compared to other communities. Yeah, most certainly it has a nice kind of geographic uh, assemblance to it, uh, for sure, that kind of keeps it a little more tight-knit and 
it's always easy to remember the the names of the of the fruits that uh, <laughs> are on the streets as well. Yeah. Uh, the one thing I heard about yesterday, I heard it from two different people in regards to the neighborhood, the Grandma Patrol. Ah, the Grandma Patrol. Yes. So when the uh, when when the um, information was coming along about the donation being possible for the African Heritage uh, Food Co-op building, we had been trying to. I had been trying to figure out how are we going to make sure that while the building is being stabilized, that it doesn't get interfered with. You know, once you put information out there in the media sources, you don't know what's going to come after that. And so, you know, there was a conversation with some people in the community, and we thought about the easiest thing we could do is have the grandma patrol, right? Because there were some people that live right on that street, right up the street. It's They don't even have to go anywhere outside of their porch to look at the building. And so, you know, it's nothing for a grandma to go sit outside when the weather is decent and, you know, just keep an eye on it from time to time. So that was uh, a a plus and a bonus for me. We've lost three of those grandmas since then. And uh, that's a pain in my heart because I had a good relationship with a couple of them. I really liked them a lot, you know, but people pass on and that's the way uh, things happen. Why don't you talk about grandmothers and their role in the black community? And we lost several grandmothers yes, in the shooting over at the Tops Market. Discuss a little bit about how a grandmother is a central figure in many black households. Um, you know, it's not just a grandmother. Sometimes it's a mom who takes on other children like for instance i have a people that know me i have a lot of um inherited sons i have sons that i gave birth to but i also inherited sons and some daughters they hate that when i don't talk about them (laughs) but you know i mean it's not that they didn't they don't have moms or they weren't raised properly it's not that it's just that kids need that extra mentorship sometimes even our young men you know we have this idea of how Young black males hit that age, that magical age of 18. Okay, you got that diploma that you walked across that stage for high school. You're good. You got it. Go ahead, right? Well, no, because they're still trying to figure stuff out, and they need mentorship. We're lacking that in our community a lot of the time. You know, we know what happened with the the 60s and the 70s and the 80s with black males being swept up and taken out of the communities. And so a lot of that is not there for them. Those pieces are missing and they need that, you know, they need that mentorship to help them to figure out, you know, what to do. Like how how am I supposed to navigate this? Back uh, to talking a little bit about the African Heritage Food Co-op that uh, is prospected to go to that location on Carlton Street, Carlton and Lemon, if I'm not yes. mistaken. Uh, we have some more information on that at our website, WBFO.org, if you want to find out about it. But what would that mean to have that grocer, full-service grocer in that location right there in that well, neighborhood? To tell you the truth, I mean, this is a conversation that we've been having since 2018 when the building was stabilized. And the reality is that in the Fruit Belt neighborhood, if that building had already been up and running, we wouldn't even be struggling as hard as we are right now to try to figure out how we're going to be able to access some things. I mean, you're not going to get everything there, but there's a lot of things that we could access from there. 
And the fact that here we are in 2022 and we're still trying to get funding for this building, you know, it feels a lot like the, it's the same reason why my community is still technically redlined. It's the same reason why my community is still disinvested in. You know, all of these things that are working together to keep poor people poor and keep them in the place where they are. You know, it's not right. But people are waking up and they're realizing that there are communities that have been left behind and they deserve to have what everybody else has. It's interesting also, of course, Fruit Belt is close to the surging part mm. of Buffalo, and that's the Buffalo Niagara Medical Campus. What I lovingly refer to as the wall. Yeah, <laughs> interesting. It is interesting in a lot of ways. Uh, talk about how that entity and its growth has impacted your community, your neighborhood. Well, you know, I mean, obviously the direct impact is on the infrastructure. If you go to my street probably right now, right at the corner of Grape and High, you're going to find a sinkhole. And that's very common in our neighborhood. You know, all all the speculators about land who are driving up these prices, but they're not telling you that there are sinkholes in this community. It's very common. You know, people have them in their yards. They have them in, in on, on their property. They are, they're everywhere. They're on the streets. You know, they're on my, there's one on my street for sure. But um, it's the infrastructure because when you think about that community and what it was, you know, all of this time that has passed, there hasn't been a, a lot of... Um, fortification put into how the traffic flow is going to manage. You know, all of these things that happen when you put up these new structures off of our perimeter, but if you're not adding those additional pieces to make sure that we can manage that, you know, in terms of our infrastructure, then naturally there's going to be a breakdown, which is what we have been seeing for quite some time. I'm going to go out on a limb here and guess that you have made it your business to make sure there are people at City Hall that know that that's the Oh, case. they know. As a matter of fact, our councilman is very much aware, and he talks about it in Common Council all the time, that there are neighborhoods that have potholes, but we have sinkholes. And the response continues to be? Well, uh, you know, I, I try to be enthusiastic and encouraged about things. You know, I believe in a word that says sometimes you have to encourage yourself. You know, I believe that we have to continue to fight because we have to fight for everything anyway. Everything is a fight for my neighborhood. And so I have to fight to remind people that while they're driving the prices of buildings and properties, they're forgetting to tell people what they're really purchasing. You know, I have to be mindful to continue to pinch the city that we need extra help with our streets. You know, if you continue to uh, put in the enhancements for the wall, you know, they get the tunnels underneath the ground that are all, all the pipes and all of that is, is put in brand new every few years. And then there, as a matter of fact, at Michigan and Carlton, you're coming, if you're walking, you'll notice that right there in the middle of the street is a divider where you'll see half of the street, half of the road is black because it was just resurfaced. It was just redone. And the other half is just what you would normally see in that gray kind of cement kind of color. Well, 
it's an instantaneous reminder as you step off the sidewalk and you're heading from Roswell into, you know, the fruit belt that, okay, there's that invisible line that divides us right there. So it's a not so invisible line. Well, it's not for us, but, you know, it tends to be for a lot of people because they get caught up and they don't pay attention. True story. I mean, um, I probably maybe four years or so ago, I was coming home. It was the summertime. It was a nice Saturday morning. I'm coming home with my bags of groceries. I come out of Allen Station and I'm heading down the street past Roswell to go home. And this guy is walking on the other side of me. You know, we're just meeting each other because we're walking the same distance. And, uh, well, we thought we were. And he says to me, oh, you're moving in. (laughs) And I was confused. And I was like, "Um, excuse you? And he said, I see you've got all these bags. You're moving in. I'm like, I have groceries. I'm going home. I don't know what you're talking about. He was like, oh, I thought you were going into Roswell. I'm like, um, <sighs> let me remind you. Maybe you don't know there's a whole community right after that. People, There are people that live there. Um, m- maybe you should go the other direction sometime <laughs> and go check it out. <laughs> it was a very uncomfortable moment for me because I was trying to be nice in the face of how could you really be that ignorant that you think that that's the only place I could possibly be heading to? We're talking with uh, Denise Barr, one of the members of the leadership of the Fruit Belt community with us uh, this morning here on WBFO. Um, sinkholes aside, what are the other challenges for your neighborhood? Well, obviously, the parking is continuing to be an issue. You know, when we first negotiated about the parking permits, you know, the uh, medical campus did not want to recognize the conversation that over the years they were going to increase their workforce. Which is obvious. It's and it obvious was the goal. to anybody. It was the goal. I yeah. mean, even, you know, I brought up the conversation about even seasonally, you're going to increase your workforce. It's just common sense that during the Christmas holidays, you know what happens out there at the gardens. I mean, anybody that has knowledge of that area knows that there are going to be more people parking. So we're seeing how it is, you know, stretching itself out in our neighborhood, how it started out at a certain point and now it's lengthening itself out. And even, to be honest with you, I've been in conversations with the principal over at City Honors because we've been talking about it. And he was having a lot of problems with people parking in front of the high school. So, you know, we had some conversation about what to do about that. He since then... We agreed to put up some signs that said, you know, you, I think it's a 15-minute um, parking limit that right. you can be seated, you know, in front of that, that that building. But, yeah, I mean, that's where we are right now. And there are – I got to see it yesterday because I had to go, yes. find, I had to go find a, a spot <laughs> over Orange Street. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which is fine. But do, you do see the signs that say oh, yeah. residential permit only. Exactly. Uh, how is that working out, generally speaking? You know, I mean, it's not a perfect plan. It needs some tweaking, but it's better because at least our seniors can go out for their appointments or go out for their groceries if they can do that. And, you know, not be afraid that when they come back, somebody's going to be parked in front of their their property or parked, you know, uh, in their spot. I mean, that was the whole purpose around this was to make sure that our seniors were protected in that way. You cannot expect 
you know, for people to travel the distance they have to go to with grocery bags and then have to be like, oh, look, somebody parked in front of my house. I have to go find the spot and walk all this stuff back. It's just not appropriate. We don't have a lot of time left, but I did want to touch upon the community land trust. Uh, maybe that almost seems like something we should do a whole nother show on a little bit because it, <laughs> it does offer an idea about what's possible in the yes. city. But give us an outline of it, please. Uh, generally speaking, I mean, it is uh, the idea that our city should be donating or selling the lots because there are a lot of vacant lots. So let's, you know, make sure that it falls into the hands of the people that want to make sure there's investment that are going to redevelop them. And so, you know, there was the agreement between the city and the uh, Fruit Belt Community Land Trust that they would allow them to purchase, although they purchased for much more than the lots were worth. But, you know, they did purchase um, the initial lots. There were four lots, I believe, and there are two houses that have gone up at this point. You know, with this market, obviously, what we've seen that's happened over the last four years or so, it's become much more difficult to be able to acquire land, but they're working on it. Uh, And generally speaking, again, uh, feel good about it? Is it a positive? I feel good about it. I mean, those those the land will always belong to the community. The houses can be sold. You know, people can 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 do that, but the land will always belong to the community. And there's a a cap on how much profit you can make off the sale of those houses, so they'll always be reasonably affordable. So a success story right in our one of our neighborhoods. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's that, a win. We need all the wins we can get. I like the, the, the smile right there of pride. <laughs> uh, the final question, and I want you to clarify this for our listening audience, because you clarified this for me yesterday. When I met you, I said, uh, Mrs. Barr, how are you doing? Yeah. And you said... That's painful because it hits people of color in the gut right now, right? Because I don't know how to really respond to that. If you ask me how I'm managing... Then I can take a breath, I can take a pause, and I can give you an answer. You know, um, I don't even know for myself right now how I'm doing. You know, that's a challenge from day to day because everything is right underneath the surface for us. You know, we're breathing in our trauma and our pain and just, you know, we take a pause and we go on to the next thing and then we... You know, we stop and we reflect and then we take a pause and we go on to the next thing. We don't have time right now to deal with the trauma. So, you know, just to make it easier for other people, you know, just remember, you know, it's a simple thing. Don't ask me how I'm doing. Just ask me how I'm managing. I hope you continue to to manage effectively. I appreciate that. Denise Barr, a member of the leadership of the Fruit Belt community here with us on WBFO this morning. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. I appreciate your time. Support for the WBFO News Desk for Older Adults is provided by Health Foundation for Western and Central New York, an independent private foundation investing in improvements to community health with the goal of a healthy Central and Western New York where racial and socioeconomic equity are prioritized so all people can reach their full potential and achieve equitable health outcomes. Learn more at hfwcny.org. Donations come in many forms. A sustaining membership, a one-time gift, even that extra vehicle you no longer need. Learn more about the advantages of donating a vehicle. Here's how. Go to wned.org slash vehicles. 
Get all the trusted local news you need right to your inbox each weekday morning with the WBFO daily email. Visit WBFO.org to sign up today. This is Buffalo What's Next, where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app, and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. Hello, you're listening to Buffalo What's Next, where we critically examine and have real conversations about what led to the Tops massacre and how we fix the issue. Thank you for joining us. I'm host Bridget Jaipal Valenza. We're joined today by Mark Talley, son of Geraldine Talley, who was killed while grocery shopping at Tops on May 14th. Mark, first of all, thank you for joining us. Um, I am sorry for your loss. I can't even imagine how you must be feeling right now. Um, how are you doing? Uh, I'm doing, I'm doing okay. Um, yeah, I definitely wish my mother was still here. Absolutely. But I'm doing fine. I can't, can't really much, uh, complain about anything at this point. So there's been an outpouring of support for you and the other victims' families from the community. Can you tell me a little bit about some of that? Absolutely. Um, a lot of people have definitely been raising donations. Uh, a couple people off my memory, um, Executive Chef Darian Bryan, he's definitely been uh, raising money, doing donations. Uh, my high school, Canisius High School, they just sent me... Um, like a package with a bunch of a bunch of basically thoughts and prayers that was written by the students and staff. Um, my union, I'm in a AFSCME, so local union, I apologize if I get the numbers wrong, 1095, uh, Council 66. There was another one. Unfortunately, I do not remember that. Uh, the local union president here, Rich Kanazi, uh, one of the higher ups in asked me, I forgot his title, Ryan Wells. I've definitely met with them. They've given me their support uh, and donations. Uh, once again, off memory, that's that's the most I can think of right now, but especially on my friends and family as well. Um, this is just an unimaginable loss, I think, when any of us even remotely consider losing our parents, we certainly don't necessarily think of losing a parent in this way. Tell me about your mom. Uh, she was she was funny. Me me and her we had our our own special bond, um, own special humor, own special stuff. We kind of dealt with with each other. Uh, we kind of knew how to get on each other's nerves. Like I would just like to push her buttons, call her old. Tell her her knees is breaking down. Tell her she's going to need that cane. Uh, she would definitely tease me. I would always crack my knees uh, around her. She would tell me I would I would definitely need a knee replacement surgery before I turned 35. Uh, constantly criticized my cooking skills because she was an amazing cook. And, I mean, unless you count me being an air fryer cooker, that's that's the most you're getting from me. <laughs> 
Um, she's been described by friends and coworkers as being sweet and the life of the party. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, she was definitely a a sweet woman. Life of the party, eh, may may kind of be pushing it there, but she was definitely a sweet person. Loved her family, loved her uh, friends, loved her children. Uh, she had it twenty dollars on her. You needed nineteen. Uh, she would definitely give it to you. Uh, I heard she also liked playing the lottery. And... Oh yeah, that's the thing I hated most about her. Okay, like she would go down the casino and just play these dollar slots for two hours straight, <laughs> and it was just it would just have my blood boiling so much that she's down there this long just playing dollar slots to penny slots, uh, putting in all these. Uh, I don't even know what you call it. Just the like the cards where you got to circle in all the numbers. <laughs> <laughs> and just give to the cashier so they can. I just hated this so much how much she did it. And she would give me the cards uh, to give it to the, the cashier to put them in. Ah. And I would have no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> and that's okay. Um, but it was time that you were able to spend with her. Oh, absolutely. Like I said, we had our own humor. Yeah. Our own bond was kind of different than the rest of the families. Yeah. Um, you had said that she was an avid baker and a cook. Um, what were some of the foods that she liked to prepare? Oh, we could go on all day about this then. <laughs> we can go from apple pie, banana puddings, banana pudding cakes, banana pudding pies, peach cobbler, uh, chicken wings, any type of fish, any type of vegetables you wanted. Like just, she would constantly be cooking. The second you step into her house, the smell would just hit you. So, did you assist in the kitchen? Were you part of this, or just uh, moral support and a great taste tester? I would always tease. I say, if I buy the ingredients, like we both made this, then, like so, that was my understanding. Like if I buy you the seasoning, you use the seasoning. For the food, we both made this. I see, I see. So you definitely add and. See, exactly. In in it, um, what was the favorite? Your favorite thing that she made? Uh, back when I used to eat it, catfish. I would love when she made it. Out of nowhere, I became allergic to it. Like two years ago, out of nowhere. So I don't know why. And her chicken wings. And banana pudding. That's a, a full meal right there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Bridget Jaipal Valenza, and you're listening to Buffalo What's Next on WBFO. We're talking to Mark Talley about his mom, Geraldine Talley. Um, let's pivot a moment to your mom at work. Um, she was known as a caring person, uh, eager to help others in need. If she was with us today in the aftermath of such a tragedy. Um, what do you think that she would be doing for her community? Well, I know she would definitely be screaming at the TV right now, like saying we definitely need more security. This shouldn't happen. There's a reason it happened on this side. 
Well, she would, yeah, she would definitely be cussing up a storm right now, mad that this happened. What do you think that she would have said about the shooter and about the white supremacy theory that brought him here? Oh, I may not be able to say that on the radio. Like she would, she would definitely be gone, and she would, yeah, she would definitely say this has been happening ever since uh, she was a child. Uh, she was born in '59. She had to deal with racism. She told me when she was a a student up here in the '70s, mm-hmm. uh, even prior when she uh, was living in the South in Grove Hill. And she told me how she saw racist things uh, that our parents had to deal with. Her parents were, I think, think that the correct terminology was sharecroppers at that time. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, she definitely saw a lot of racism, and she would definitely be so upset and complaining about everything that happened. Um, this massacre is about racism. And it has lit a spark in you, especially given the stories that your mom has told you and what you've just now experienced. Can you tell me about how that has lit that fire in you and what that means for you? Unfortunately, um, basically, if you go through throughout history, a tragedy had to light a spark in order for change to get done or for a fire to begin in a person so they can start doing something. And the same with me. I'm trying to do my best to work with any nonprofit I can in some either full-time or contract position. I'm trying to work with uh, different organizations in the community from Open Buffalo, Buffalo Urban League, uh, Friends of the Night People. Hopefully down the line I really want to set up my own uh, type of type of donation practice, if you can call it, whether food drives, closing drives, uh, not essential supplies, feminine products, or just donating money to give to other organizations. I'm really, really trying to do stuff like this. I'm trying to, in my mind right now, I'm trying to plan my first one, uh, just a food drive, and I'm definitely aiming for my second one to be... Um, Back to school supplies coming up in August for the kids. This is a question that you may not be able to answer, but do you have anything to say to the shooter? Absolutely not. Um, once again, he's he's definitely going to get his in due time. So, so there's no point to give to give attention to people who you know that's beneath you. And that's exactly how I look at them. Um, You are pursuing your master's degree in public health. Um, While you're studying, certainly you'll be looking critically at social determinants uh, as factors to to health. Um, When you look around your community, what do you see? Uh, my community is just basically basically a picture-perfect representation of what socioeconomics is. Uh, if you look on the east side, was well, there's the Maston uh, area, the Fruit Belt area, 
like it's a perfect synopsis of basically you have generational poverty, which is from the poverty cycle, which is in a low socioeconomic status area, which can create food deserts. You have the majority of people coming from single-parent households, the majority of people lacking a college diploma. You have people who are barely not even making enough money. And all of this is a perfect synopsis for somebody to come in, scout the area. Because basically, nobody really cares about that area. And you can take it back to the Fair Housing Act in the 70s, which created all of this gerrymandering and redlining, which caused uh, the majority of east side areas to relieve, uh, to receive lack of funding. Um, nothing like this, I believe, would not have happened in East Amherst or Orchard Park or Clarence or Kenmore because those areas more than likely receive more funding. They have more areas where people can go to shop. It's definitely not food deserts over there. You look over in the east side, basically um, kind of a a well-known open secret is if you live in an area surrounded by a lot of black people, you're not going to receive that high mortgage. Your property values will be very low. So even if you wanted to leave that area, you couldn't. And if you want to receive a mortgage or refinance, you're not going to get it. They say if also if your area has a lot of, a lot of corner stores, liquor stores, a lot of bodegas, that's considered a bad area. All of this costs white flight, so you have a lot of people stuck in those areas, really for air, um, forever, trying to pay either an exorbitant amount of rent or trying to buy a house that they'll never get because, A, they can't afford it, and B, mortgage, uh, mortgage lenders won't give them the money. How would you start to remedy that? It's a lot of things I would love to do, but unfortunately, that's that's up to the people, people higher ups than me. Like if I was a president, um, once again, you can really start with reparations. There's been people, other cultures, that have been given reparations. Uh, don't quote me on this, but I believe when I was reading, there was a, um, I believe it was, I believe it was the Irish. Irish people were given reparations. It was either Irish or Jewish people. One of those communities were given reparations for acts that took place to them uh, back in the 19, I think early 20th century, because when they came here, nobody, they didn't, um, jobs did not want Irish people. And it just specifically said that and wanted papers. So you think that reparations will be the start? Yes. Is it the start of a conversation or the start of a, a new dawning or a new renaissance? Uh, it really shouldn't even be a start of a conversation. This this conversation should have been had once the Civil Rights Act passed. Uh, although people make it seem like Martin Luther King, the Civil Rights, uh, Civil Rights Act happened you know, 100 years ago. It was only in 1964, I believe, the act got passed. So if you have maybe a grandmother or a parent that's in her maybe mid-70s or 80s, she was around back when people told her she was better than people of culture. I mean, back in the 70s, 
like an act got passed, I believe in the early 70s, that allowed women to finally get their own credit card without having a man present. So all of this stuff happened recently. At your mom's celebration of life service, there was a call for us to stand united against hate. What, what does that mean to you? Well, it means to me that we should, well, I think when it was said, I think people, people meant that we should just finally stand up and take action. But uh, like I said, I'm, di- I'm tired of standing up. Like we've been saying, take action ever since the Rodney King beating that happened, you know, close to 30 years ago. Like it's time these thoughts and actions finally take place instead of saying it. I believe the terminology, uh, once again, I kind of may get it wrong, but uh, like a like a thought without a plan is just a dream. And we've basically just been dreaming this whole time. There's been no no plan that has been put to action. So we need a plan. Yes. Um, is that what's next for Buffalo? A plan? Uh, well, at my first first uh, press conference with the families, Terrence Connor and Ben Crump, um, you know, I said, I don't believe this would be the last shooting we'll hear. I believe another one will be happening really quickly. And unfortunately, in close to two weeks later, we heard about, I think, uh, 20 kids and two or three teachers getting shot with another semi-automatic rifle. Just at the NRA, I believe a 17-year-old got gifted a semi-automatic rifle. So once again, these plans, these actions really should have been taking place over 20 years ago. And still now here in 2022, we're having a conversation whether people should have semi-automatic rifles based off the Second Amendment, based off of something that was made in the mid middle 18th, 17th century, and we're trying to apply it to 2022. So if, if we have to have a conversation or a plan, the plan has to be to change the U.S. Constitution, since this was made when people could just actually walk into your house and shoot you with a musket. So I don't believe we should still be basing our actions and thoughts on how we do stuff today based off of something centuries ago. Would you want the age limit raised for the ability for someone to get a weapon. Absolutely. Um, if you're a 16-year-old and your parents sign off, you can legally join the Army. Uh, you have to be 21 years old to buy a pack of cigarettes. You have to be 25 years old, depending on which place you go to, to sign off for a rental car or a hotel. So at 18 years old, when your brain hasn't even fully been formed based off what uh, organization MAD says, your brain isn't formed yet. So if your brain isn't formed, I don't see I should be able to buy a semi-automatic rifle. Thank you, Mark, for joining us. We appreciate you. And on behalf of Buffalo Toronto Public Media, we wish you and your family our deepest condolences and sympathy. For your loss. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. 
I'm host Bridget Jaipal Valenza. Up next, WBFO News Director Dave Debo with Attorney John Elmore as they discuss accountability in the wake of the Tops massacre. Stay with us. Support for the WBFO News Desk for Older Adults is provided by Health Foundation for Western and Central New York, an independent private foundation investing in improvements to community health with the goal of a healthy Central and Western New York where racial and socioeconomic equity are prioritized so all people can reach their full potential and achieve equitable health outcomes. Learn more at hfwcny.org. Stream the best from Buffalo Toronto Public Media's YouTube channel. Adirondacks, Canadian Rockies by Rail, Chautauqua, an American narrative, and so much more to watch. The very best of WNED PBS, now available on YouTube. Support for WBFO, your NPR station, comes from our members and from the Buffalo Philharmonic, presenting sax legend Kenny G in a one-night-only concert on Wednesday, June 1st at 7.30 p.m. in Kleinhans Music Hall. The star's iconic blend of R&B, pop, and Latin music with a jazz foundation debuts with the BPO for an evening of indelible melodies and instrumental perfection. Tickets at 716-885-5000 or bpo.org. You're listening to Buffalo, What's Next? There are several ways for you to join the conversation. Send us a message now on Twitter at WBFO. Email us at news at wbfo.org or just press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app and leave a comment we can use on the air. We're here for you. This is Buffalo What's Next. Good morning. Good morning. This is Dave Debo. Joining me now for the next 20 minutes or so for the final segment of the program, we have Attorney John Elmore here. He's a former member of the board of the NAACP in Buffalo. Uh, Oftentimes you hear him in the media commenting on legal issues because not only is he an attorney, but he's a former state trooper, a former assistant U.S. attorney, and particularly in regards to this discussion, he's representing the families of Kate Massey and Andre McNeil, two of the victims of the top shootings. John, thanks for being here. Thank you. And if I could just, just correct one thing. Yeah, yeah go I, ahead. I, I'm I, sorry. I was a former assistant DA in Manhattan and a former New York State Assistant Attorney General. So, uh, okay. Not, not the U.S. Attorney's Office. That's I'm the federal sorry. government. All Never right. worked for the feds. Not the feds, <laughs> but the state. That's correct. Nonetheless, a guy, a guy who certainly knows, A, the legal process, and B, who has been exposed to this sort of thing before. We'll get to your Olean history in just a minute, I promise. Sure. Uh, but, but I want to start out with some of the research that you've done. As you represent these families, you have basically discovered that there is white supremacy here. You know, I, I, I've read over 600 pages of, of this killer's social media chats and discussions, and uh, uh, it, it is just shocking to me uh, and, and eye-opening to me uh, the extent of, of this underworld of, of white supremacy, uh, the number of people who sympathize with him, the potential of other copycat people like him, the people that that encouraged him, uh, and shared those views, um, and and not just views uh, that were anti-black, uh, but anti-Jew, uh, anti-gay, anti-Islam. Uh, yeah, it, I mean it is scary. Uh, uh, this group of people uh, that that hate uh, to the point where they want to just commit violence 
against people that they've never met, that they don't know from a, from another city, uh, just because of their sexual orientation, their religion, uh, because of their killer, uh, that, that, that believe um, in some sort of racial purity, uh, that uh, America is only for Europeans, um, and, uh, and, and, and kind of believe in, a, in an ethnic cleansing type of thing. It is scary to me to, to see that these people are out there and how active they are. And, and, and this sculpt culture, uh, it's almost like a community. Uh, so when you look at what happened to, to, to in, here in Buffalo, uh, this wasn't a lone wolf. Uh, this was somebody that got information, uh, intelligence, people were aware, and, and encouraged him for doing what he did. Are you saying it exists and it exists here, or are you just saying that it's out there, the amorphous there? Well, um, I, I, I believe that that the threads of this uh, white supremacy uh, are all over America, and, and it's been an eye-opener to me. Also, you've learned, obviously, and, and there have been several reports on this, um, earlier in the in the hour, uh, Denise Barr spoke about it. Mark Talley with Bridget just spoke about it. Uh, the idea that the neighborhood doesn't necessarily have the investment that it needs. The idea that there there is certainly segregation in Buffalo. You know, statistics have shown that Buffalo, New York, is the sixth most segregated city uh, in America. I mean, we're, we're a blue state. You know, we we fought uh, for the North in the uh, Confederate. Uh, against the Confederates, and, and to, for us to in in this day, 2022, to be the sixth most uh, segregated city in the United States, you, you have to wonder why. If we're looking at ways to move the community forward, uh, part of that I imagine is holding certain individuals accountable, and that's where we come to the lawsuits you have you have pending. Obviously, that involves gun manufacturers, but is the scope broader than that? Do you look at social media? Do you look at uh, racist hate speech? Do you look at things other than just perhaps guns and their influence in this particular case? Well, let, let me just say that, that my law office has joined with the Koskoff law firm. Um, Josh Koskoff um, was the lawyer that represented the victims of Sandy Hook, uh, resulted in the only uh, settlement against a gun manufacturer, Remington. Uh, for $73 million. That litigation took over seven years. He has the playbook uh, uh, how to sue Remington. And I also uh, have uh, partnered with the Giffords firm. Uh, Gabby Gifford was a congresswoman who was uh, shot uh, in, in, and, uh, and lived and survived, but she has a foundation to assist victims of gun violence, and they've pledged legal support, financial support for this litigation if it happens. We're at the early stages. We're looking to see uh, if there is a potential lawsuit against Remington, we're looking to hold anybody else that's responsible for this, which we're, we're looking at uh, the, the, the manufacturer of the body armor that he wore. Uh, we're looking uh, at the social media platforms that he was on. Um, and and, and uh, it is going to be an extensive, thorough investigation where we're going to leave no stones unturned. Uh, we, we have, I believe, assembled the, the, the best legal minds in in the country for this type of litigation. Um, we cannot promise success. Um, at this point, we can't even promise that there's a lawsuit, but we're, we're at the early stages and we're going to leave no stone unturned. So you're definitely looking at more, looking at more than just guns. That's correct. 
how can you even look at social media in a country that has the First Amendment? Well, again, the First Amendment is not an absolute right to freedom of speech. I mean, we have freedom of speech, but, I mean, it's just a, a simple thing to say you can't yell, you know, fire, fire in a in crowded a theater. theater, right? you right. know? So you can say certain things, you know, uh, but... Uh, we're, we're, we're looking to see to what extent they could be held responsible as well. And, and again, we're keeping an open mind and leaving no stone unturned. And uh, beyond guns and social media, you also spoke of the body armor. That's an angle that I hadn't heard of before. Um, but if they manufactured it and he used it, um, would you have to be able to say he used it in uh, a bad way? We, we have reason to believe um, that under a pseudonym, um, that, that, uh, there were some body arm, there was at least one body armor, um, person, um, that was either involved in sales or marketing, uh, that was in communication, um, with this killer. Is the ultimate goal to hold these companies, these, these, uh, entities responsible or is the ultimate goal to try and somehow get solace for the families? Well, the ultimate goal is to make our community safe, okay? Everybody was at danger um, uh, of being killed or injured. I mean, this guy targeted churches. He targeted, uh, he actually ultimately went and shot a supermarket. But there are other places, schools uh, that he visited, that he planned to look at and considered assaulting. And people of all races um, could have been killed and injured. And all of us are in danger. So, um Obviously, the family wants justice. Uh, I'm a member of this community, and I want to make sure that our community is safer. Uh, so there, there are a number of, of goals. I wouldn't say one is any higher than the other, but justice for the families, uh, the loved ones of those families, uh, and, and to make the community in, in Buffalo, uh, around Jefferson Avenue, safer, all of Western New York safer, and all of America safer. What does the community in specific around Jefferson Avenue need right now? Well, again, you know, we, we have a, we have, it, it's probably the poorest community in, in Western New York. Um, people there, they need, they need jobs, uh, they need better health care, and they need better education. I mean, we live in a, in a city where there's really two different types of education. We have a very poor quality of education in the city of Buffalo, and great schools in the suburbs and private schools. Um, people need, need jobs. Uh, people need better housing. Um, there's been, an, you know, I mean, we, we, I don't know how many, how much money we're spending on, uh, on the stadium here, but, you know, there has to be businesses located in the community where people can get to and and get decent salaries. So. How how do you create those jobs in an already economically disadvantaged neighborhood? Well, um, Tops is a business. They're going to look at the the balance sheets. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyone that wants to come into that neighborhood is going to assess it from a business perspective. Mm-hmm. If if the incentive isn't there, is it then the role of government, private foundations to incentivize investment in that neighborhood? Well, well one thing I want to just say is that, is that there's a myth uh, that, that people in the neighborhood are lazy and don't want to work. Because if you look at the people that worked at Tops that were affected, and, and I've gotten a chance to know a lot of them and knew a lot of them before this even happened, those are people that are working two and three part-time jobs to make mm-hmm. a living. 
Um, I mean, they have a work ethic. They yeah. want to work hard. And, and any any business that's looking for people that are, are going to work hard and want a decent wage and that are just good, hardworking, loving people would want to invest in that in that area. But again, other parts of the city, they have industrial development zones. They have tax breaks. Uh, they get government incentives to create their build to create uh, businesses. But it just hasn't happened in those neighborhoods where people have access to those jobs. So more, I, I think there are probably a multitude of solutions. But it sounds like you're saying, at the very least, government intervention, government with a partnership. Um, with with education, old facilities, UB, Canisius, uh, partnership with the, the private sector, a partnership with the religious folks, but people really just need to work together. You spoke of um, the TOPS employees that have two, three jobs holding it together. Uh, one of the things you discovered in the research for, for, for your lawsuits and for the community is that there is a big gap there when it comes to some of the mental health treatment available to them. Well, certainly. You know, I mean, a lot of people have come to my office that, that have worked for TOPS only because they didn't know where to go to, to get help, not not for legal assistance, but just for guidance. Um, so take somebody that's works for TOPS, and they have another part-time job. Uh, I, because they're not meant, you know, they could be suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder and need counseling. TOPS is offering group, group counseling, but they may need individual counseling. There's a loss of income because they're not mentally ready to go back to their second job because they saw somebody get their brains blown out, laying on the freaking floor, okay? And 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 they're having nightmares. They can't sleep at night. And so how are they going to get that private health care, um, you know, if they cannot afford the copay and they have the loss of income from their second job? Um, fortunately... You know, I, I have knowledge and contacts where I've been able to direct people to get that type of help, you know, for, for free of charge. I mean, I'm a community lawyer. I love this community. I want to do everything I can do to help. That story speaks a lot to the suffering that's still going on. I would imagine there's even still some anger in the community. Have they have they moved to those other stages of grief? Well, you know, I mean, people are angry, but but nobody that I'm aware of is is is, is angry to the point where, you know, they 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 want to create start violence. That they want to retaliate uh, against anybody. They they want they just want solutions. They want peace. They want to get back to their normal lives. But certainly, they're mad. They might punch a wall. <laughs> <laughs> Long term, where do you see this situation? Be it the education gap, be it the neighborhood services that some of the earlier guests spoke of, uh, be it the segregation, be it the lack of business investment. Paint a picture for me of what all of those areas look like a year from now. Um, let, let's hope uh, that we begin. I mean, you build a building um, one brick at a time. And just let's just hope that every day bricks are being laid uh, to get a good, strong foundation. And, and every, every day and every week and every month and every year, things are a little bit better. Do you think that's possible within one year? Do you do you anticipate real change? I mean, a lot of this program, and and I'm not picking specifically on you, but you're the man in front of me. A lot of this program for the past couple of days has discussed possible solutions, and I think it's real easy to dwell in the theoretical. Do you picture action? Well, 
it's it's hard to predict the, the future. I, I I just know that I am an individual. Uh, I am a private business owner uh, with a building on the east side of Main Street. Um, I'm going to do do what I can do uh, to help those that have come to me and and uh, ask for my help. Um, every year, I, I sponsor. I'm one of the sponsors of a Jefferson Avenue block party. Um, I try to sponsor youth uh, sports leagues and concerts in Martin Luther King Park and serve on boards. And, and, and I can tell you that my law firm, we're going to do our share. Um, and, and, you know, you don't build a house uh, in a day. You build it a brick at a time. And uh, let's hope that our, we can build the east side up a brick at a time. And every, every day, um, it's just going to be a little bit better. That's what I hope and pray for. John Elmore is here with the law office of John Elmore. Uh, as as you heard him mention, connected to the community there, but also specifically in regard to this case, re- representing the families of Andre McNeil and Kat Massey. Uh, John, I did mention this earlier. I want you to talk a little bit about your historical roots, born and raised in Olean, New York. Yes, I was born and raised in Olean. Where you had um, the first ever school shooting in the United States, 1974, December 30th. 1974, uh, a, a rampage in a school, the first one on record in the United States. Your dad was a victim. My, my father was the first African-American firefighter, um, actually a classmate of mine, um, uh, entered the school and was and with a Remington and was shooting. And uh, my father was a, was a first responder and uh, was actually shot in the head and uh, lived his life uh, disabled after that. Um, and uh, I, I feel the pain um, from living through that uh, with the victims in this case. Uh, I can tell you there's a lot of difference between pain and sympathy because all of Western New York feels sympathy for what happened on Jefferson Avenue. Uh, but those people that were affected are going to feel pain, and that's the type of pain that's never going to go away. And it's pain that you still carry, you say? Absolutely, I still carry it. Okay. Yeah, yeah. How did it affect your life? Well, it, it affected my life. Number one, um, I'm 17 years old. My mother didn't drive, and my father was was in a only in, was in Buffalo General Hospital. Uh, we didn't have GPS there, so <laughs> I, I had to figure how how with a map how am I going to get from only in the Buffalo General Hospital to drive my mom there to drive mm-hmm. my mother back and forth to work. My father, in addition to being a firefighter, had a had a, a window cleaning janitorial service. So my brother and I. We tried to, to run that, that service. We, you know, my, we eventually, my father lost that business, so it affected us financially. It affected us emotionally. Um, and, 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 and today, you know, people, people get counseling. They get GoFundMe. They have prayer vigils. Uh, the students in my class after the shooting, uh, the school was closed for, for a week. Uh, and uh, the next week we went back to school um, and... There was no counseling, you know, there was no prayer vigils. Uh, it was just like, I mean, I'm 65 years old. I remember a lot of people asking, how's your dad? Uh, I'm 65 years old. To this day, no one ever asked me, how are you? Mm. So, so how are you? Or ask my, or ask my <laughs> brother or sister, how are you? You okay. know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, yeah. so, yeah, you know, but so, I mean, yeah, it was, it was, it was tough. I had to figure out. You know, I mean, you know, I was counting on my dad to to take me around, drive me to visit colleges and stuff. And uh, I, you know, I had to figure that out on my own. You know, I was recruited by the I, I, uh, 
the track coach at University of Connecticut. First time I flew, I flew by myself. John, thanks for uh, sharing all of this. All right. We are sadly out of time. Thanks right. also to uh, the earlier guests, Denise Barr and Mark Taley. We want to hear from you. You can use the Talk to Us feature on the WBFO app. And we will be here tomorrow live from the Golden Cup on Jefferson on WBFO Buffalo, WBFO HD1, and WUBJWL on Olean.